following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. Good morning, everyone. Today's scripture reading comes from Psalm 19, verses 1 through 6, and verse 14. The heavens are telling the glory of God, and the firmament proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night declares knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard, yet their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In the heavens he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom from his wedding canopy, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and nothing is hid from its heat. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And this morning's second reading comes from Romans, chapter 10, uh, verses 9 through 13. I believe it's page 921 in the Red Bibles, if you're following along. If you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For one believes with the heart and so is justified, and one confesses with the mouth and so is saved. The scripture says no one who believes in him will be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all and generous to all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So there is um, a lot that I have to talk about this morning. And yet I'm tempted just to spend a lot of time with that passage we just heard read. Um... How many of you have heard some version of that passage in church before? Yeah, and that, especially that part that says, if you confess with your lips and believe in your heart, you'll be saved, right? Um, the reason that I want to spend at least a couple minutes with this passage and with that verse is because it's one of those places in the Bible that I've talked a little bit about during this series, and I mean before, but especially during this series, where it is so easy to tweak the interpretation and application of it to make it, to make it mean what you want it to mean. I'm speaking as a pastor and a preacher and a teacher right now. This happens uh, sometimes in the church. Um, but I got thinking about this passage from Romans 10 and how it's so dependent on what some of the words in, in the passage mean. Does this make sense? Right. I want to look specifically at the, the verbs in that passage because I think if you come with me here for a minute, You'll see what I mean. First of all, it starts with the word because, and I love that Doug omitted it. <laughs> but the verse starts with the word because, which is one of those clue words that you really can't start right here. <laughs> the problem with the book of Romans is if that you go back to the one before it, it's like, oh, that's a therefore. I can't start with that one. Then you go back. 
oh, it's another because, and you're pretty much here at the first page of the book of Romans, and so it's like, should we ever read a single verse from the book of Romans? Well, I mean, yes, but should we base an entire uh, understanding of salvation on one book, or one, one verse from the book of Romans, or four, for example? No, no, you should not do that. Um, but just listen to some, a couple of sentence from this, sentences from this, and, and hone in on the verbs with me, Okay. Because if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. <laughs> For one believes with the heart and so is justified. And one confesses with the mouth and so is saved. Do you see how if we were just willing to slightly alter um, what we mean by confess and believe and save... We could kind of construct an entire religious world just around these few verses. And so I call these verses chameleon verses because they can change their color to match the background of the preacher or leader or Christian who is speaking them and teaching them. And what's more, that if you take that single verse, if you confess with your lips and believe their heart, um, that Jesus is Lord and God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. That's, that's like, that's a microscope kind of view, right? And you could back out and have the whole passage read, or you could go back and read the whole book, the whole letter to the Romans. But even that wouldn't necessarily be enough to put it all in context, because you have to read it with the rest of the New Testament and the rest of the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament. Right? So, I start here because this is such an important aspect of what I'm trying to do with this Reclaiming Christianity series that we've been in for a few weeks now. If you remember, we started out with a, a sermon called Reclaiming the Cross, where I encourage you to rethink what was happening on the cross. What does it mean that Jesus died for your sins? And then we went on to Reclaiming the Bible, which... Um, was a chance for us to think about what the Bible is and what it isn't and, and how in an attempt to put the Bible way up on a high pedestal, we might have actually lowered its value and we might have actually degraded its truth. And so moving it from, a, from that pedestal to a different place in our spiritual home can be such a gift to us. And then last week we did a, a question and response time, which was really wonderful and probably could have gone twice as long as it did. And I got so many great questions over email. I just didn't have a chance to answer all of them. But it occurred to me that a lot of the questions, if not all of them, had kind of in, in, as their foundation this idea of this is taking everything apart and it's very unsettling or painful even. And I don't know where to go. I don't know what to do next. And there's really no easy answer for that. But I do want to encourage you, if this series has been resonating with you, and, and um, if you haven't listened to, if you missed the first two, you can go back and listen to them on our podcast or watch the replays on Facebook. Um, I want to encourage you that this is not intended to make you completely uproot every aspect of your faith and the foundation of your belief and just chuck it. 
the encouragement here is to reclaim it for yourself with some new perspective. And so it might be helpful to think about... Um, <laughs> did you ever play one of those board games where the, like, the answer was encoded on this weird red field and you couldn't see it? But if you put on the red plastic lens glasses that came in the box, you could read the answers. And it's like this thing which had no meaning for me whatsoever now is very clearly just saying, right? Um, Minnesota, <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, I'm not saying that if you, if you, if you reorientate yourself that the, the Bible's going to say Minnesota to you. But I am saying that the task is really to imagine that you have a new pair of glasses on and then to go back and revisit everything. And if that sounds like it's going to take a long time, that's because it is. But it's worth it to put the time into that. And we're here to travel that weird and winding road together. This is one of the beauties of being in community with each other. So, today we come to the third topic, which is reclaiming confession. Which actually, for me, was the start, was the, was the, the source idea for the whole series. Um, because confession is one of those aspects of Christian life, which is so central to the, the understanding of Christianity and the practice of Christianity, and yet is also so painful for so many people. Right? I will not ask you to share your stories, but I know that you have them. I know that many of you have stories of having had, um, in a Christian setting, the concept of confession used as a lever to control you. Used as a weapon to shame you. And I know that that is true, and I know that there is something good and true and beautiful about the act of confession, and I want us to try to reclaim it. So let's start with what the word even means. I told you a minute ago that you can adjust the, the dials on the verbs just a little bit and, and completely steer a passage of scripture wherever you want it to go. The word confession, there's a few ways of, of understanding its meaning, right? We're, most of us, our uh, primary language is English, and so we think of the English word confession, which actually has uh, an uh, etymology that simply means to declare something forcefully. Which you might not have guessed, right? <laughs> Based on how we use the word confession, um, there's a little monkey in our sanctuary. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> The people on Zoom are like, what? <laughs> My goodness. To declare it forcefully, confess it. Um, D- Doug mentioned a minute ago that we have these different ways of, of um, y- using the word confession, even in our own worship practices. I'll talk about that in a second, but one of them fits better with, with declare forcefully than the other one. If you wanted to go back to the biblical sources and look at the the Christian scriptures, which were uh, written in Greek, there's a Greek word that's translated into the English word confess. And the Greek word is a kind of a mashup of words that mean say and together, right? So it means like you're sort of speaking something um, as one, right? It's It's like a corporate agreement, 
So it's kind of this delicate situation where this word carries so much weight for us. It's, it's so much at the center of how the Christian story is told and how the Christian religion is practiced. And yet we don't even really probably think very often about what the word even means. And so this is, brings me to kind of the third way of understanding what confession is, and that's, that's based on how, the, how, um, how we practice confession in the church, right? And so, as Doug mentioned, when we in our liturgy, our order of worship, put a confession into one of the spots, it usually takes one of two forms. It's either a confession of our sin, which is confessed like you might think of in a legal sense, which I know we're probably trying to distance ourselves from when we think about the cross and what Jesus did there. We've already talked about that a lot. But a confession in a legal sense means, yeah, I did it. I did the crime. But we also use the creeds of the church as a confession of our shared belief. And that one sounds more like uh, a forceful declaration or an agreement about the words. And so the way the church has historically used confession is very different from the, the, in worship from the way that we so often use it when it comes to thinking about how we're saved and what the requirements of being together in community are in a certain place. Let me tell you what I mean. There are some big problems, I think, with the way the church, especially the evangelical church and its kind of surrounding orbiting church, has talked about and practiced confession. We've directly tied it to salvation, based in part on that verse from Romans. Right? The, the, the Romans Road, if you've never heard of it, you probably haven't spent much time in church or in high school around the kids who went to church. Right? It's just these four verses in Romans that, that are supposed to give you the whole picture of your need for salvation and how you receive that salvation. And one of them is if you confess with your lips and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Right? Which definition of confession does that sound like? Doesn't that sound like a, a, a forceful declaration rather than an I admit I, I, I did the crime? Do you see what's about to happen? What the church does is takes that second definition of confession and inserts it into that salvation formula that they create from the, this one verse in the book of Romans. Right? And it's like this, this algebra thing, X equals 2Y plus 14 or whatever, right? You know, if you want to be saved, and we'll talk about that definition next week, then what you have to do is plug in your confession, which in the Romans text seems clearly about like a, declare, a declaration about who Jesus is. But what the church does in practice is makes it about you publicly admitting everything you've ever done wrong. Right? That's an extreme version, but it's not an entirely inaccurate one. And then, as you continue on in life in the church, and some of you have had this experience, if you commit a sin that's big enough, 
by which I mean public enough or salacious enough or that inspires enough gossip, you have to go up in front of the church and publicly confess your sin. And if you don't, then you are in violation of the salvation formula from Romans chapter 10, and you had better put on your fire suit. And if it goes on long enough and you don't confess, then, then you'll be banished from the community. You'll be, you'll be considered out of harmony, <laughs> to coin a phrase. I didn't mean to say that phrase, but some of you have uh, another definition of that phrase in your head, as do I. I see some of you nodding your heads, and I can, like, the, the waves of pain are radiating off of you as you do. So confession has often in the church been a messy and harmful and painful practice. And if it's based on shame and control, if it's at best a cheap path to, you know, stasis, like getting equal, or at worst a total distortion of what it means to be saved in the first place, then if it's all that bad, then why would we want to keep it at all? Well, I did include it as one of the topics in this series that we want to reclaim. So clearly, you know, I want to keep it. I don't want to just do away with it. So if we're going to reclaim confession, I just want to have some, I have some brief thoughts to share about what I think might be the value that we could still find in confession. You know, what practical good might come from it? And how we can kind of move forward with none of the baggage that we brought with us. Because it's not required to understand what the purpose of confession actually might be. I want to help us think about confession in a, in a healthy and life-giving way. And best of all, I want to offer for you a story from the Gospels that I think is a wonderful model for what confession can be and for how God receives us when we have fallen short, when we have rejected God. And then, I actually kind of rewrote our confession of sin. Um, and I thought it might be nice to, to consider praying in a slightly different way this week. All right, so here's the first thing. That confession, when it works well, without requiring the shame, without requiring the public spectacle, It can be a pathway to absolution and to forgiveness. I am sorry to admit, see, that's a confession. Um, I'm sorry to admit that I've almost never included the part of the liturgy um, that's the words of absolution, the, the assurance of forgiveness. The confession of sin that we prayed together a few minutes ago is from the Book of Common Prayer. Love this book because it's older than any of us. It's older than our country. <laughs> and yet it still speaks to us and for us and with us. Um, most merciful God, we confess that we've sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, 
etc. Many of you know it off by heart at this point. What comes after that in the Book of Common Prayer, which actually contains a whole service, we only use this little piece of it, what comes after it is words of absolution. And years ago someone said, you should include that, and I did for a few weeks, and then I just, I don't know, we just kind of forgot to keep using it. Maybe we'll get back to it, but let me say those words to you now. You all spoke the confession. Well, maybe not all of you. It's okay if you didn't. It's always okay, by the way, just to, hmm, while we're praying those words together, if you're not sure. But many of you prayed that prayer a few minutes ago, and I want to say the words of absolution to you now, which would come from that same source text, the Book of Common Prayer. Almighty God, have mercy on you. Forgive you all your sins through our Lord Jesus Christ. Strengthen you in all goodness. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, keep you in eternal life. Amen. So if you're taking that confession of sin seriously when you pray it, it might kind of drag you down a little bit. The end is intended to bring you up. And then the words of absolution are intended to really reassure you that that you are right with God. Now, What's kind of hidden maybe in the subtext of all that I'm saying is the question, do you actually have to confess in order to be saved? <laughs> well, this is, this is where we're kind of in the middle space between this week's topic and next week's topic, which is salvation. But I'll just say this for now. The traditional model of thinking about being saved in the Protestant Christian church often involves not only these, like, this confession of your sin or your need for God, but also like mustering enough of that belief, right? Because if you have to confess with your lips and believe in your heart, then you will be saved. And for a, for a movement of Christianity that was founded on the idea that we're saved by God's grace, not by the works that we do, That way of understanding confession and that way of understanding belief sounds an awful lot like work. And if you're struggling with your belief, or if, God forbid, you forgot something that you did and don't confess it, right, or confess it in the wrong way, you have not done the acts that are required for you to be saved. And you just want to go, that's not what it's about. We're really good as Protestants. Um, 500 years now of criticizing the Catholic Church for focusing on works rather than on faith and then focusing on our own works, right? <laughs> Which, by the way, <laughs> we include faith under that. It's, it's, oh my goodness. Anyway, suffice it to say, I'm reluctant to make that direct connection between a particular type of confession and your eternal salvation. At the same time, what good is your forgiveness, which I think is offered freely, what good is it if it doesn't transform you? I don't mean just later in eternity, but I mean now, when you can actually do some earthly good for the people around you and for yourself. What good is God's freely offered forgiveness if it does not transform you? And what I want to say to you is that it's my reckoning that the the act of confession when it leads to forgiveness and absolution, plays a pretty big role in the process of your transformation. 
Now, you might have guessed, since my, I've, I've said the word forgiveness a few times, that, that we probably have a part to play on both ends of this equation. Forgiveness is not s- described really anywhere in the text as something that we only receive. In fact, it's very often connected with our act of forgiving others. And so this is another way that I think confession can be useful to us because it, it models for, the, for everyone, for the church and for the world. I don't, I don't like that phrase, the world, right? How many of you grew up with the world being like this, <laughs> this terrible place, this, this group of evil people? But confession can model for the, the world of the church and the world beyond the church that there is a mechanism by which people who have screwed up royally can be restored to dignity and to the good graces of their community. And Lord, do we ever need that right now, today? Listen, the the whole cancel culture thing is mostly an invention, right? Um, If you're a bigot, you don't get to go on TV anymore, okay? Like, that's not you being canceled. That's you facing the consequences of your terrible actions and opinions, in many cases, years and years and years after that probably should have happened, right? So I hesitate to even use the word cancel, but I know that that's going to be swimming around in what I'm about to say, so I just needed to address it. Um, This is not about cancel culture. It is, however, about what I think is actually very true in our society, that we have very little capacity for forgiveness, especially for public forgiveness. The world is starved for it. The secular world is starved for it. And this is one of those occasions where the church can be some earthly good to the world outside of its walls by modeling that there is a way in which someone who has messed up royally can be restored. Because we have a pathway to peace. We have a mechanism for that to take place. And so if we could use confession to model that rather than as a way for us to be gatekeepers for salvation or bouncers at the door of God's bar. (laughs) If, If we could use confession that other way, it would be really great is my point. So then what does healthy confession look like? If it's not going to be that other stuff, what is it going to be? We want to always try to define ourselves not by who we aren't, but by who we are. Not by what we don't do, but by what we do. And so, one more time with the caveat that this does not need to include any of the baggage that you brought with you, even though some of what I'm about to say may overlap with the way confession has been talked about in your past. Here's what I think a healthy confession can look like. First of all, I I think that confession should, whenever possible, happen within the context of the offense that took place. Which means that unless there's a really good reason, confession is usually going to be done in private. Which means unless there's a really good reason, it's going to be offered to the person or people who were wounded by the action that one took. 
So I'm trying to think of occasions where it would be, ever be appropriate for a person to stand up in front of the whole church and make a confession. They would have had to somehow found a way to wound the entire church by themselves. And you know who, who are the only people who can do that probably? They're the pastors. And it's pretty rare that the pastors are the ones who stand up and confess in front of the whole church. It's much more common that they're the ones who, I won't say drag, but lead somebody else. And so I hope that if there's an occasion where I have harmed the entire community, that I would have the courage to stand up and confess my sin and ask for your forgiveness. But I will never ask any of you to do that when you've committed a sin off on the side somewhere. The other thing is that confession is connected to repentance. (laughs) Really, this late in the sermon, he's pulling out another one of those words (laughs) that's been so heavy and carried so much pain for me. Really? At 11 or 1045, you're going to say the word repentance, Pastor? I acknowledge repentance is another one of those words that can be very thorny, but it simply means a change of mind and heart. And I think that good, healthy confession is connected to good and healthy changing of mind and heart. Notice I say connected to, not leads to, and not follows. Because I think that can happen both ways. It's a very complicated and messy process that we find ourselves in sometimes, and I don't think that there's a very simple formula that you can follow. Sometimes a confession is the inspiration for repentance. And sometimes confession is the natural follow-up to repentance. Do you see what I'm saying? By the way, I think the same thing is true about forgiveness. Sometimes we confess because we've been forgiven already. That's how I think it works with God, by the way. But it can happen with people, too, where someone carries enough grace in their soul to offer forgiveness before you've asked for it. And it can happen in that way. But sometimes it happens the other direction too, where when you as the offending party can muster the strength and courage to offer your confession to the individual you've wounded, that can inspire them. That can make it possible for them to offer forgiveness to you. These are both fluid, two-way streets. And most of all, the most important thing that I think we need to keep in mind if we're going to reclaim confession is this. Confession should be a release of shame, not a reinforcement of shame. Let me say that again. Confession should be a release of shame, not a reinforcement of shame. And this is very tricky because every church that you've been in where you had an experience of confession that was a reinforcement of shame would have said to you, this is a release of shame. Right? God save me from ever making that mistake myself as your pastor. 
I'm going to offer you one story from the Gospels, which I think is kind of the perfect picture of all of this. I'm not going to read it all to you. I'm going to tell you the story and where I think it fits into this picture, and I'm going to encourage you, especially, especially if you're a person who's been wounded by the requirements of confession in your church history, especially if that's you, I'm going to encourage you to read this story on your own this week, to meditate on it, to take it into your heart and soul, and to allow God's Holy Spirit to begin the process of bringing about your healing. It's the story of the prodigal son, which I talk all the time about how Jesus reveals the heart of the Father, how Jesus is what God has to say. I talk extensively in this series already about how the crucifixion is God's perfect, or Jesus' perfect revelation of God. God wasn't punishing Jesus on the cross. God was in Christ forgiving our sins, right? That's as far as Jesus' actions go, the best revelation of God's nature that we have. But I think this teaching of the prodigal son is Jesus' best revelation of God's nature in parable form. You know this story already, even if you think you don't. It's the story of a, a young man who wanted to live his life And so he asked his father to give him his inheritance early. And he took the inheritance and he went off and had a party. (laughs) And he lived it up in all of the ways that you can imagine a young man might live it up with plenty of money. And spent it all down. And was literally living in a pigsty, which in a Jewish context is a particularly bad place to be living. And so he returned to his father expecting to be made a servant in the household at best, just hoping to get some kind of absolution before he passed from this mortal coil. And instead, he found as he approached his house that his father was out on the edge of the property, looking for him, hoping he would return, waiting for him. And he embraced him, and he put a robe around his shoulders, and he put a ring on his finger, and he said, kill the fatted calf, we're having a party. I didn't say party. You know what I mean. (laughs) Have you ever seen the Rembrandt painting, The Return of the Prodigal Son, where the, the, the father is embracing the son, and the son is like down on his knees, entirely ashamed, with his face kind of buried in the chest of his father? This is the picture that Jesus wants to give us about what true confession and true forgiveness and true repentance looks like. The son had a change of heart and mind. He came back willing to accept whatever consequences might exist. And instead of meeting out those consequences, instead of grinding the son down further into his shame, the father lifted him up and lifted his his head and said, My son, there will always be a place for you. Do you need to hear those words, my child? God says to you, there's always a place for you at my table. How could we get it so wrong? How could we get it so wrong? How could we have that parable read to us year after year after year in the church and still come away with this idea that confession 
I don't know how we can get it so wrong. It's in Luke 15. Find it this week. Spend some time with it. What I'd like to do um, with this reclaimed confession that I've written is read it to you first without asking you to pray along with it. And in that way, you can decide whether or not you want to pray along with it, and then we'll pray it together. Does that seem fair? We've already prayed the Book of Common Prayer, Confession of Sin. I'm not trying to replace it. I'm only trying to add on to it. I'm only trying to widen it. Here's how it comes out. God of mercy, you who were willingly shamed on the cross, receiving the sins of humankind in your very body, receive our confession, grant us forgiveness, and be our peace. We declare our failures our self-centeredness, our too frequent indulgence of our worst impulses, our complacency and complicity in the evils of our world. It is true that we have not followed the Lord's teaching to love God with our whole hearts and to love our neighbors as ourselves. We proclaim our failure together. When we return to you ashamed, you lift our heads and embrace us. When we are dragged before you abased, You drive away our accusers, reassuring us that you do not condemn us. Our forgiveness is granted, complete, sufficient, ours before we request it. Give us the added grace to accept it, to internalize it, to bask in the warmth of your love. And give us strength to extend this grace and forgiveness to each other, knowing that because we are all a part of the family of God, those who wound us are also your beloved children. God of mercy, who bore our sin and forgave it, crucify our shame, bury our pride, conquer the enemy of our souls, remove every trace of doubt that we are loved. May we joyfully enter into the delight of abundant life in Christ our Savior, now and forever. Receive our confession, grant us forgiveness, and be our peace. Amen. It's a little longer than the other one. Um, I want to give you the chance to pray those words as a community, to agree together, if you'd like. Um, And I do apologize for running us a little long once again. But then we'll take communion and sing maybe another song together before we close. So let's put this confession on the screen. And if you'd like, we can say it together. God of mercy... You who were willingly shamed on the cross, receiving the sins of humankind in your very body, receive our confession, grant us forgiveness, and be our peace. We declare our failures, our self-centeredness, our too frequent indulgence of our worst impulses, our complacency and complicity in the evils of our world. It is true that we have not followed the Lord's teaching to love God with our whole hearts, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. We proclaim our failure together. When we return to you ashamed, you lift our heads and embrace us. When we are dragged before you abased, you drive away our accusers, 
reassuring us that you do not condemn us. Our forgiveness is granted, complete, sufficient, ours before we request it. Give us the added grace to accept it, to internalize it, to bask in the warmth of your love. And give us strength to extend this grace and forgiveness to each other, knowing that because we are all a part of the family of God, those who wound us are also your beloved children. God of mercy, who bore our sin and forgave it, crucify our shame, bury our pride, conquer the enemy of our souls, remove every trace of doubt that we are loved. May we joyfully enter into the delight of abundant life in Christ our Savior, now and forever. Receive our confession, grant us forgiveness, and be our peace. Amen. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.